Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 33 of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. And we're going to jump right into our first topic, which is around Pwn to Own. Um, so in the last episode, we talked about Pwn to Own, uh, specifically that they'd be allowing remote participation in this year's uh, Pwn to Own Vancouver due to all this coronavirus craziness that's going around. Uh, but obviously, over the last week or so, the virus has really blown up um, in terms of severity. And there's a lot of things getting cancelled or getting moved to online only. And that's basically what's happened here. Uh, they've moved Pwn to Own Vancouver so that it's remote only. Uh, they're not going to be hosting the contest on site at Cansec West. Uh, they said the schedule won't change and the results are going to be shared with the conference organizers so that they can share them with attendees. But all the participation is going to be uh, remote and there's not going to be any actual uh, ZDI staff on site. Yeah, what I found interesting with this announcement was just that, uh, you know, all the attempts will be made by ZDI researchers out of Austin, Texas. So fine, but... When we were going over the announcement last week, one of the things that was mentioned was that this is basically going to be, if you if you decide to participate remotely, this is going to be a one-shot. Either your XY worked yeah. or didn't work. And I'm wondering if that's going to be adjusted at all now. Uh, because everybody's remote, and they don't mention that. I definitely tried finding that out. And as far as I can tell, they really don't give any mention towards that. They do say, like, of course, they're in communication, but... They mentioned they'd be in communication last time, too. Yeah, I would imagine that they would have to lift that restriction just because it doesn't seem reasonable. I, I would uh, hope so, but given like the time constraints that like, you're already under when you're participating, like I can kind of understand if they didn't just because, you know, one researcher might understand what somebody's saying better than another and be able to help more. Uh, just in mm -hmm. terms of like what the researcher understands in terms of, like, oh, you need to adjust this value. Well, you know, where's that in your payload type thing? Whereas another researcher might be more familiar and that kind of gives an advantage to those that get the better researcher who's able to help out more. Uh, so like I could understand if ZDI doesn't, but at the same time. To be fair, at least with the attempts, I think the um, contestant would send the payload directly to them just to run it like i think the zdi people would just be running the exploits i don't think they'd uh you know be tweaking it themselves i think the researcher would tweak it and resend them a new version kind of thing uh i could be wrong um there's probably a lot more details sent fair to the yeah i mean it's yeah no that's a fair point like i really don't know it's just yeah, that no adjustments being able to be made definitely seems like if everybody's going to be remote, they'd want to lift that. Otherwise, the results of this will maybe look rather too positive for some companies. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see um, how it goes. They do say also that they will have the vendors. Obviously, they won't have them on site, but they have the vendors uh, like, you know, on the line kind of thing for uh, when the vulnerabilities are you know, confirmed and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, which definitely makes sense. I mean, that's big part of the whole thing is the fact they do give the advisory to the vendor. So, yeah, there is going to be a bit less or uh, a bit more of a communication barrier, I guess, though, between the researchers and the and the vendors where they're, you know, not in person physically. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think it's a huge issue. And I think it's probably worth the trade off, you know, to do it remotely because of this, uh, all this craziness going on. I think, I think yeah, it's, it's, it's really move. that or canceling it. So, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's an amendment to the last article that they had uh, with new information. So we definitely wanted to bring it up. 
Um, the next one's a little bit cheerier, though. It's uh, from Google announcing their first uh, VRP prize winner. So last year, uh, they announced a Google Cloud Platform uh, Vulnerability Researcher Prize uh, to promote security research into Google Cloud Platform. Uh, and just now, they've uh, just announced the winner uh, for the prize for 2019. Yeah, well, so there were several winners. Like, they have several prizes that were being given out as part of this. I think it's like up to six um, or something like that. They have a yeah. There's a list six the prizes. First prize though here is 133,337. That's for this year, not for last year. Oh, is I that? Yeah. That okay. Good point. Yeah. Um, so they did. That's another thing is that they ended up tripling the prize amount for this year's prize. So this year's prize pool is 313,337 dollars, which was no accident, of course. Um, but yeah, that that is for this year. Uh, I just wanted to quickly point that out. Uh, sorry, you can continue there though. No, I, that was all I was really going to go with was um, just that this was kind of part of their, in other places they also refer to this as the VRP grants, um, which seems to be part of a larger program. I'm not exactly sure, but then part of uh, Google Cloud Platform specifically, they want more people <laughs> looking at that, so they added in basically more money towards it. Uh, so for that... Um, Obviously, they kind of announced at least one of their winning write-ups, which was for Google Cloud I would pronounce shell the winner's bugs. name, but I would butcher it. I can guarantee it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, we can at least say their organization is Offensy, or at least okay. that's where they've published their write-up. And the write-ups, you know, being one of the winning write-ups here, it's fairly clear straightforward issues um actually the issues are kind of interesting uh they do cover four bugs uh and there's a live overflow video that covers these also but just to kind of give a quick note on what they were here i mean with the google cloud platform one of the features you've got with that is your google cloud shell uh basically like um or at least it can be you can do other things but uh kind of having like a id in the cloud uh, so you can say on a GitHub, you can have a link to opening the Google Cloud shell or op open in Google Cloud. And you'll have this little link that, I should probably bring up the correct file. Uh, you'll have this link that opens up Google Cloud shell um, and will open up, or it'll clone your Git repository, open up a file if you specify one for that, uh, which ends up in the example case here, in a Python file, it'll load up the Python language server. Uh, if you're not familiar with kind of the language server idea, it's just trying to move the implementation of, of like your language meta information. So like an IDE, rather than needing to implement support for every language under the sun, it just needs to support this one common language server protocol that it can then use to get all the syntax highlighting, get, error messages, get uh, typing information, get all of that stuff that you might want to query, you might want to have inside the ID. It queries the language server for that. So that's where uh, the Google Cloud Shell will basically support some syntax highlighting because it will run this Python language server. Uh, the interesting thing that was known for this bug was that the Python language server would look for some libraries that wouldn't exist within the home directory uh, but it would try and load them obviously it would fail and it would just move on from there uh, so what you could do is if you cloned a 
a Git repo that would expand into one of the libraries I was looking for. So I'm talking Python libraries, not here, shared object libraries. Um, it would go ahead and execute the init of whatever library you had. So you can get code execution as uh, the cloud account that's running, uh, basically exposing all of that user's information and basically whatever the user had access to, you'd now have access to. Uh, the second bug being uh, their custom cloud shell image. Again, so by default, it uses a particular, I believe it was a Debian-based cloud shell. Okay, oh. yeah, I see it now. The, yeah, I see it on the browser. Yeah, Debian 9 stretch Docker image would be kind of the default one that it would use. Um, and from there... So they just don't, like, sign it or anything? They just allow you to run any image? Well, so they do have some protection. Um, okay. When you load a custom shell image, it won't do things like loading your credential information into the Docker instance. So it loads it in Docker. Um, and it won't mount, like, your credential information. It won't mount a lot of sensitive stuff. But you can't specify any Docker image for it to run. It just won't have access to a lot of stuff if you use a custom one. Okay, uh, fair enough. But what they found was that while var run Docker sock, which is kind of your default Docker inside of Docker, well, the Docker socket communication to Docker, that's, like, the default socket location for it. Um that one would just be like your normal docker client and then just tossing inside of the inside of the docker shell fairly standard but they also would mount uh google slash host slash var run docker sock um and that was the host like the kubernetes host uh docker socket or at least a level outside of what you would have had it it's not entirely clear. It's just, you know, it's just, it's the host. I believe they refer to it as just the host Docker sock. So from there, you're able to execute your own Docker commands with um, higher privileges. Uh, so oh, you can okay. basically create a custom image that would create a new Docker container that would mount everything privileged. Um, and... I mean, I'm probably butchering these quick explanations as we go through these kind of quickly. Um, it's a good write-up, though. You can give it a look yourself also. Uh, did you check out Live Overflow's video at all, by the I way? I did not. I okay. meant to do it before wondering. we started this, but... That's okay. Um, but yes, or did you have something to say? No, no, you can go on. I was just going to ask about the other two bugs as well. Yeah, if, so... Uh, if you had information on those. Yeah, that's where I was going to go into. Third one here with Git clone... Um, basically with a git repo, you can have hooks. So these are like a pre-commit hook, post-commit hook, just scripts that will run when you perform some action on the repository. Uh, usually that will be used to like pre-commit, you might want to run all your tests, or perhaps you'll only do that like pre-push, but you'll have it run all your tests. And if the test fast pass, then it will actually commit. Uh, what you can't do just kind of with your standard repo or at least by default, is commit the hook script, the hook scripts themselves to the repo. Uh, but basically, what I found is using a bare repository. There is a hooks folder that you can just commit straight to. So then, when uh, the cloud shell goes and um, clones the repository, it's able to have a hook that will happen on the cloning. 
Uh, and so you get another script executing just as that root user, or, well, as the main user again. Um, and kind of a similar issue. Well, uh, I guess not a similar issue, but it, at a similar point, the fourth bug is go and get pwned. I do like that they kind of named that last one. <laughs> yeah, and as you can guess, it takes advantage of go get command, which was actually an undocumented parameter with the cloud shell. Uh, you can give it a go get parameter which would cause it to do a you know, go get on that repository. Um, and in examining the cloud shell Docker image, they found that it had a vulnerable version of Mercurial installed. Uh, just no invulnerability with that. So they were able to create a repository that um, go get would end up grabbing and would take advantage of that exploit. Again, okay. that's just kind of the really quick overview of what these issues were. It is a, or these are all very good write-ups, so you can take a look yourself. I'm going to assume that the live overflow video is solid. Um, he actually mentions at the start of it that live overflow was able to polish it up a little bit more, so I'd assume they're fine. I mean, I have no reason to think live overflow wouldn't uh, do a much better job than we've just done going over them. Oh yeah, I was gonna say like live overflow generally does like a really good job on those kinds of videos, so it's it's definitely worth check. I'd say check that out probably over the write ups. Uh, the write ups might be more uh, detailed and like code snippets and stuff like that, but I think the live overflow video will be more probably a bit less dry and uh, more accessible. I didn't find uh, these to be too dry, really. Um, okay, I, I, but I'll say, I mean, some people like videos. I don't. I prefer reading these things, so. I always kind yeah, of go so, towards that, but I totally give, like, there's a lot of people who like to see the video, so I get that. It's cool that there's both options out there for people. Um, but, like, there were some noteworthy things in the Google posts as well um, for GCP directly uh, that I thought would be worth bringing up for anybody that's, you know, potentially looking at submitting into that. Um, they say that you can make multiple submissions uh, for the prize. Um, and that you can use a free tier of the Google Cloud platform for research purposes uh, if you don't want to pay for the, you know, the, high, the higher tiers. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, they tripled the prize pool. The prize is pretty crazy. Uh, first place gets uh, 133K out of the 300K prize pool. Um, second place to sixth place also gets prizes that, you know, obviously get reduced as you go down. Um, so the prize amount's pretty crazy. But one thing that is worth noting is I, I don't think the reports themselves also get a bounty on top of that. So it, it's it's more of like a contest thing where only your best submission kind of gets a payout. You don't I don't think you get a payout on top of that for individual bugs you find. At least it didn't seem to indicate that that was the case. So, you know, there is this really high bounty. Well, but... so I, I think, I don't think that's the case, actually. So, or I do, really? okay. I believe you do get paid. So this is part of, I believe this is part of their vulnerability reward program grants specifically, which is a separate thing from the vulnerability rewards that you receive. Um, I know okay. they always just keep referring to, to uh, VRC, or sorry, VRP, and they just kind of keep that. Uh, where I'm getting the grants from is perhaps it was in the last year announcement um i'm not entirely sure but i do believe you're still going to get paid for your finding like you're not going to get shafted if you don't get a prize for example 
Okay, the way the blog post was worded, it almost seemed like because of how heavily they were pushing the prize program that you didn't get paid for the individual bugs. That was my kind of yeah, assumption. Yeah, it, it, it's possible. I mean, that wasn't my understanding. Um, that said, I mean, that's something you'd probably want to look into. They do have kind of a more detailed... Um, like rule information criteria yeah. yeah yeah so i mean that that was just like my like guess um i've never participated in like the google cloud uh stuff for like research so i could be totally wrong there uh it's just something that i was thinking of is that was kind of my assumption based on how heavily they were pushing it but like you yeah, said yeah i don't know I've, pu I've just pulled up their prize uh, like the official rules here and it definitely seems really focused on this being the prize for the write-up that you submit yeah uh and not necessarily like i i really can't see them uh pooling support for like your actual bounty if you had a good finding being like nope you just get this prize Especially like since they wouldn't be deciding on these prizes for quite a while after, assuming you submitted now, you wouldn't find out until, you know, the next January 30th, so. That would really suck for people, like, relying on income. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I really can't see this being limited, or actually, uh, like, I can't see this being the same as the payout for the actual bounty. I mean, yeah. Google pays quite well when it comes to it, I can't see them shafting researchers like that yeah. um but i thought it was really cool that they linked out to live overflow that's probably really cool for him and well it uh, seems like they sponsored the video in general oh really I yeah so i did that. A, so i had i did pull up the video and had started watching it and then something took me away from it that's why i didn't finish but i'm pretty sure he mentions like google sponsored it um if he didn't that, that would have been like the first few seconds of the video so if I'm completely misremembering, I apologize, but um, yeah, I, I do believe they sponsored Ham to do that video. It wasn't just that's pretty cool too. Like that's that's good for him, man. Like um, you know, he's he's been blowing up over the, over the last like year or two, and it's definitely uh, the quality of his content is is definitely worth that. I think, uh, and it's cool to see like an official Google thing uh, kind of you know giving him a bit of a shout out. Um, but that being said, I, I think that pretty much wraps up the uh, the Google uh, VRP stuff. Uh, we'll move into some uh, tinfoil hat territory. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But our next topic is, oh, uh, is a little off. bit crazier. Yeah. So, uh, so this I'm, one's Whisper. Uh, just before you go into I am going to say the tinfoil hat stuff. Honestly, I mean, we, we had some discussion about whether or not we want to use this source. So I've seen a few places mentioning about Whisper and the recent compromise of it. Uh, a lot of them don't actually make mention of who the company was that reported this. And Which that's, is really sketchy. <laughs> yeah, like, there's definitely, like, I'm sure the information they're reporting, you know, seems legitimate. The issue seems legitimate, but there's definitely, like, a very tinfoil hat, conspiracy theory feel to a lot of their posts, including this one. Uh, but they have some follow-ups to this, which I think get a little bit more sensational. Uh, I think we're, so we ha we were a little bit questioning whether or not we actually want to cover this or take one of the more mainstream sources, but, you know, 12 Security, they're the ones that first put it out there, so they're the ones that we're going to report from. Yeah, we always try to use, like, the original source. Um, so, basically what this one covers is about Whisper, which is supposed to be an anonymous social media app. 
Um, yeah, have you used Whisper before? I've never used Whisper. Um, okay, I haven't either. I'm just not really big into social media, honestly. So Yeah, well, and this is kind of like a, you know, off my chest sort of thing. It's supposed to be anonymous. You can post whatever things you wouldn't actually want other people to know about. You can go in and post that out there and kind of get it off your chest. Yeah. So this is one post of a five-part blog series by 12 Security, um, and it covers a breach as a result of them apparently leaving their production database cluster open for several weeks. Um, I couldn't really see, like, it didn't seem like they went into too much more detail about that. They just kind of left it a bit vague. Well, they mentioned that it was Elasticsearch. Okay. So, and we've covered, we used to cover a number of these at Rick Weaver. And I mean, it's just one of those things. I mean, Elasticsearch defaults, you put that on the network. Yeah. We've had that discussion. And in this case, you know, they had it out there. So anybody can go ahead and query everything. Yeah. Uh, what they tunnel in on is how like heavy the tracking is on some users, uh, you know, or well, on all users. Um, you know, they have like geolocation stuff. They have this field related to like predators, predator probability, uh, the top feeds of certain members, which they allege is used for blackmail. But, you know, there's some pretty allegation, uh, pretty crazy allegations in the blog series, which is why I think uh, a lot of the mainstream media publications kind of distance themselves from them. Um, so it does seem a little bit sketchy. Uh, you know, I was, I was initially saying when I was doing my research into getting notes for the podcast that I couldn't find any media posts, uh, that actually linked a reference to this, uh, this security, uh, like company. And part of the reason for that is the only article I think that referenced them was a Washington post article. Yeah. And to uh, be fair, it's uh, paywalled. So to be fair on that, uh, 12 Security did reach out directly to Washington Post. So Washington Post are the one that actually broke this story. Yeah, and a lot of the other articles link back to the Washington Post. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind right. of funny in how that works. Um, so I'm not saying any of this is bogus information or anything. It just does seem a bit, uh, like you were saying, uh, sensationalized. Uh, they have some pretty bold claims in here. They say that there's like a special database of military-related blackmail information uh, on thousands of service members. Um, it sounds really far out there. Uh, it'd be really stupid of them to have a database of, like that of blackmail just sitting on a production cluster. <laughs> well, I, I mean, mean, if they're going to, they're collecting it though. They're collecting it off of production. I mean, they're not going to connect to. I, so, I mean, it kind of comes down to how they're pulling the information. Um, if they're having the app kind of detect certain things and then report that back over, then it makes sense that it would hit production. If they're pulling that information out of what they've collected, then it makes less sense. It feels like they would, like, you would think common sense would make them do the latter. Like, if you have, like, a cache of, like, a bunch of incriminating information to use to blackmail people, you probably well, want to Well, you don't expect everybody usually. to be able to know that either, so... That's true. It just seems kind of weird, you know. Um, I'm not sure if I believe all the claims entirely, but I think it is worth bringing up. Uh, regardless, the breach did happen. Um, yeah, apparently, apparently the numbers are somewhere in like over a billion records, not users. Uh, I think I saw either Washington Post or ZDI or ZDNet. Yeah, apparently sorry. it's used quite a bit, uh, the app. Um, but yeah, I mean... You know, regardless of breach did happen, they did say they're also talking with uh, U.S. military, I think. They said they were talking with, like, the attorney general and stuff like that. Um, 
uh, due to like the stuff on service members. So, you know, it, it does seem they're definitely serious allegations and uh, it seems like a serious breach. Yeah. Um, it, just, it seems er- like they don't give a timeline for their disclosure here of kind of what's already happened. Uh, and that's kind of like, it, it feels like they maybe disclose this early. Uh, like, mm, I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe it's already resolved. I'd hope it is, but oh no, since they don't give that information, it just, it feels like there's a lot that's still going on around it. That maybe they shouldn't have disclosed this just yet. Oh yeah. It feels like it's an active ongoing thing. Like they even said, they're still coordinating with, uh, apparently coordinating with the military and stuff. Um, one thing I found kind of weird too was uh, I think they created an account or something for the research, and they named it uh, they named it legally uh, searching Elasticsearch or something like that. And it seemed really weird that they would uh, keep that legally term in there when I'm pretty sure that this wouldn't be legal because <laughs> I doubt they have the permission of Whisper to carry out these kinds of tests. Um, no, and I, I mean, know. that's that's the thing. Like, it is technically just exposed on the internet, but we have seen the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, links in the U.S., uh, being applied to searching public information. So, like, just direct access. Uh, so this would be that. This would almost certainly uh, fall foul of uh, the CFAA. Yeah, so I'm not sure why they put that legally part in there. Maybe they did that on purpose because they know it's illegal. Although, to be fair, I mean, the odds that this is going to get them prosecuted or anything, insanely low. Uh, I mean, we see a ton of researchers that search Elastic, like just expose Elastic database, try and figure out who it belongs to so they can report it. It sounds like that is what they've done. So, I mean, technically speaking this probably does fall foul of the law in many places realistically it's not going to be enforced they've handled it presumably given you know benefit of the doubt here they've handled it fairly well responsibly disclosed that they haven't just straight up dumped it or anything uh so oh no i'm trying to find what you're talking about though because i do remember that being in an image i think it was actually in a uh in a text snippet if you just do like a control F for no, I found uh, it here in an image actually. Oh, okay, there you go. I thought it was in a snippet. So yeah, hacking Elasticsearch legally. So yeah, kind of weird. Um, they even highlight yeah. it for you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So yeah, you know that happened. Um, if you want, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I you know you could check out those blog posts. Just know that it does obviously have like a political spin on it. Um, you know, you know, yeah, ties to I, the Chinese government and stuff like that. I did you know, think it was kind that. of interesting to bring up, though, just because of the kind of secret side of this. Like, this is an application that is supposed to be secret, or it's supposed to provide some sense of privacy for you it's to, supposed to say things. And they yeah. track a lot of information that I would not be too happy about. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, false anonymity. Like, you're anonymous from other people on the platform, but you're not anonymous to the people that actually run the platform, which is an or issue. Or anybody that gets access to the platform. Or, or, yeah, or anybody that gets access. Which, so, I mean, okay, being a, I believe they are at least a Chinese company, though. So, I mean, there are some legal requirements around that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, um... Still, I mean, I thought it was worth bringing up just because of that aspect. I mean, it's, it's not a very technical issue, uh, unlike this next one, though, unless you've got something else to mention on this. 
No, I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, I haven't used Whisper, and I'm I'm probably not going to use it due to this blog post, to be honest, uh, if I was ever going to consider using it. In the well, future. if you have something <laughs> that you don't want people to know, just don't share it. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. But uh, yeah, we can definitely move on to uh, some of the more technical stuff. Uh, LVI. That's our, our first headliner this week. Um, yet another microarchitectural attack. <laughs> Um, but this one's actually kind of interesting, uh, in my opinion. Uh, it's called it, so LVI stands for Load Value Injection, and it primarily targets Intel SGX. Um, now you were saying this one apparently has a trailer as well. We yes, have, uh, there's a trailers. trailer kind of right here on the page. Do we um, want to watch the trailer? <laughs> uh, I don't think we want to play it, but it's a okay. very movie, uh, movie trailer feeling. <laughs> Yeah, of uh, it's yeah. give it a watch. It's like you know we had name vulnerabilities. Now we have uh, vulnerabilities with uh, movie trailers, and I mean Next like they put a bit of effort into it. Yeah, um, um, I believe it's a trailer for the presentation at uh, what it, I forget which conf one of the big conf or like main researcher conferences. So, which it'd be funny if that conference got canceled. <laughs> like uh having a teaser trailer for it for your conference presentation and then you know due to all the coronavirus stuff it's just like oh we're not going to be hosting the conference this year man that would suck um yeah but it, one of the things is it targets intel sgx uh i'll be honest i feel like we talk about intel sgx in a negative context so much on this podcast it's ridiculous <laughs> um we we like i think we've covered like at least three or four things in the last like month or two um, yeah we've definitely we've definitely covered them a good number of times uh i am seeing them as uh at least having something specific to sgx in episode 30 and episode 11 yeah so um you know we've seen a lot of these name volumes at the micro architectural level uh this one is a little bit different though because a lot of the attacks we've seen before are, uh, you know, based around leaking, uh, leaking an unknown secret um, through like speculative execution or something like that. But this one actually takes the less treaded approach of can we inject data into a victim's transient execution or basically force attacker data to be forwarded from microarchitectural buffers. Um, and they say, we are the first to combine meltdown style data leakage with specter style gadget abuse to create a new type of attack. So that sentence alone kind of uh, summarizes why theirs is a little bit different from what we've seen before, which is uh, part of the reason I, you know, uh, really wanted to cover it. Yeah, and um, kind of like the gist of it is they do poison the buffer, uh, one of the kind of hidden processor buffers, uh, and then they induce a fault uh, in the victim. Um, and then the, the attacker's value that was injected then gets effectively... At, executed or speculatively execute from there which you can then use for like a side channel a fault or a micro or a micro architectural assist i think a micro yeah code no assist. Yeah. micro code assist is the other thing basically anything that gets it to follow uh the path that they've tried to inject into the architecture um yeah. as, as effectively you can kind of think about it as like injecting i i've Maybe saying this because of one of the other papers we're going to cover, but almost like injecting like the return address that the fault's going to follow. When it gets fault, it's going to return off to, you know, whatever. So you're injecting kind of that value and getting it to speculate uh, down that code execution path. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they have a white paper about the issue and they describe it as basically a four phase attack. Uh, they have a cool bi- uh, like little diagram on the white paper on page four. Um, but like, I'll, I'll do a general like overview of it because well, I, I thought it was kind I of interesting. I can bring that up here. You okay. said cool. page four? Uh, yep. Page four, uh, figure three, I think. Is it uh, yeah, page four, one? figure three. Yep, that one right there. Uh, so actually, you already had that one up, I think. Um, yeah, but they it's have on the like main a page. more. Yeah, they actually have a more detailed like bullet point breakdown of each phase. So uh, the first phase, they initialize the the hidden buffer that you were mentioning earlier with the attacker value. Uh, in the second phase, um, the victim tries to fetch the trusted value from the loaded micro op, um, but then the attacker will try to trigger that page fault or microcode assist. Uh, which will trigger the CPU to transiently compute using that injected value. And then in the third phase, uh, they try to leak values uh, due to that like malicious computation. And depending on the gadget code around the load, they can either encode secrets to exfiltrate them or trigger control or uh, data flow redirection. So if the trusted value is like a pointer to code or data, um, that's how you get that you know control flow. Uh, kind of take over. Uh, and then the last phase is like the fix up where the results and the instructions are discarded. Um, and they note you can even recover some traces of that through a side channel later on. Um, the second phase is like the most critical part of their attack. Um, so I thought it was kind of cool because they, they use ideas from attacks we've seen before, like Spectre uh, with the gadget utilization, but fundamentally it is a different attack. Um, one, one thing that's worth mentioning is uh, one of the proposed mitigations is to include load fences after every load micro-op. Um, but part of the problem with that is the overhead on that is very costly. Uh, they say the overhead is a factor of like 2 to 19 uh, for introducing uh, a bunch of load fences like that. Um, they did a benchmarking using crypto operations from OpenSSL's speed tool. Um, and they found the performance overhead can reach from anywhere from 0.91% to 978%. So oh, I, a, just, uh, just a bit of a range uh, there. Right? Just, just a bit of a range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to take one thing out of chat really quickly. Um, Neuropoga uh, mentions uh, LVI is supposed to be fixed and the latest Intel CPU. So just buy new CPU, buy new CPUs. Um, it's good or it's good for Intel. Um, Honestly, like, so I'm not in a position where I'm buying CPUs frequently or in large, large quantities, but I feel like Intel has just lost so much goodwill over their handling of these issues. Uh, And that just comes down like, if it were just Spectre and Meltdown, you know, fine, like very significant issues. But then we found out that they were keeping several other vulnerabilities kind of hidden from everybody. They made it seem like Spectre and Melt, or at least Meltdown was dealt with. Oh, but actually we knew about these other vulnerabilities. We just didn't tell you about it by the time. So by the time everybody kind of does buy their new, uh, new set of CPUs, it's like, oh, actually those are now vulnerable still to this. And we knew about it for the last like year and a half. Even this um, one, and I this think, one, was yeah, was disclosed well in April of last year. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I I just feel like they've lost so much goodwill. Like, yeah, it's good for Intel when people are buying the new CPUs. I just feel like there's that trust that's been violated by Intel here. Um, and they've still kind of got a market share, have a de facto share just by their position. But 
Well, I don't know how, like, I wouldn't be too eager to be buying Intel. Well, part of the thing, too, is not only has Intel been having to deal with all these issues, which is probably stifling their, like, innovation on newer, uh, you know, technology. Well, they weren't really innovating before them. I, I know, they were kind of sitting on their pile of money, uh, which is another thing uh, that I was going to talk about. But not only are they having to deal with these issues, but AMD is also getting a lot better. Um, and because of the design decisions that AMD took, they're not running into these issues. They don't have to, you know, uh, spend a bunch of time trying to go back and fix these, which introduce high performance overhead. So not only is Intel kind of losing that trust and also performance because of these mitigations, but AMD is also getting better. So it's like there's not really much of a reason to buy a, an Intel over an AMD unless it's like a very specific circumstance. Um, you know, like the yeah, the, the, at the consumer level, I would say you know yeah. AMD is probably your best bet. That said, I think at the server level there is still a bit more for the Xeons than for Epic. Yeah, but like getting back to this actual issue it's a cool attack uh it builds on some attacks we've seen before and takes a different approach but the condition to exploit it is very high uh that ability to be able to introduce page faults and stuff like that is why this attack is only really that useful against uh sgx so it just seems like more and more the statement of just throw sgx out is becoming more and more viable because uh we've seen like we've seen at least two or three attacks now that hit sgx that you can't really do anything about. Like, uh, the last one we covered was the one where uh, the IOMMU is uh, initialized later than the page tables, so you can basically do DMA writes on the page tables. Like, there's a few design decisions with SGX that just seem questionable uh, to the point of it's just not really worth using if you care about yeah, I mean, it, stuff, really. it's a hard problem, too. I mean, you're trying oh, to sure. protect the CPU from a malicious operating system that's allowed to execute on the CPU. Like, it's definitely a hard problem. Yeah, I won't take away from that. It is a hard issue. It's just that SGX has been getting hammered, and this is just another issue that kind of affects that. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, Yeah, I'm not trying to defend as... SGX, just... You know, yeah, we're pointing out, like, because we do, because as you've mentioned, we've covered SGX a few times. You know, it's it's not like we're saying like we're going to do better. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, as cool as this attack is, it does kind of take away from it that you need such a high level of access to pull it off. Because of that, it's not really as serious as, like, Spectre and Meltdown were. Um, because, you know, Meltdown, I, I'm pretty sure you could pull off from JavaScript before that was fixed. Um, so, you know, that's definitely not the case here. You need a higher level of access, but it's still cool how they pull it off. So yeah, uh, no, I, I love the idea. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, that, that's one of the things like sometimes, you know, the exploits are just done because you can not, it's not always about the practical effect it's, and I mean, perhaps in the future, something more practical will come out effect, but it's the first step to get people thinking about it too. Yeah. So our next cool low-level level paper is uh, Trespass, another named phone. Uh, so it's TRR capitalized S-Pass, which isn't really a new vuln. Uh, it's more of a way to hit a fairly old and well-known attack, which is row hammering. Uh, so row hammering, for people who don't know, it's essentially for forcing a lot of memory accesses on a specified address to try to trigger voltage fluctuations on nearby rows to trigger bit flips. Yeah, um, so I'll just touch on that really slightly. One of the big differences here, though, is 
you pull this off very differently than how you would normally pull off a Rohammer attack. Um, because okay. this is basically going after the mitigation that was put in place to prevent Rohammer. Uh, so with yeah, Rohammer, you know, TRR. most common, yeah, well, target row refresh, TRR. Um, most common, Rohammer, you're doing like a double-sided where you kind of hit the row above and the row below where you actually want the biff flip to, biff flip to happen. Um, and you start ta targeting those with various accessors, just hitting them over and over until you get a biff flip in the row that you're not accessing. That's your row hammer attack, usually done with just the two, maybe a few more. But generally speaking, you're wanting to limit the number of aggressors you have or the accessors. Uh, whereas with this, what happens with TRR, effectively, they looked into what the mitigation was. Um, and what they found was that TRR essentially tries to track how many accesses an attacker performs and on which rows. And then will refresh the neighboring rows instead of basically preventing the biff lift from happening by doing a proper refresh on the data instead of letting it get uh, corrupted. Uh, so this is one of those cases where once you kind of understand a little bit about the mechanism behind that, it's like, well, it can't track every access. Uh, there's a limit to how much data it can know. So with uh, this attack, uh, instead by using more aggressors, um, that's how they're able to kind of get around that protection. They have more aggressors accessing more rows, so it can't keep track of it, and it won't know which rows to refresh in time, uh, allowing the biff flip to happen that way. Yeah, it's done two ideas. Um, they basically summarize TRR as a set of two components to make it work, and that's the sampler and the inhibitor. So the sampler tracks how many rows are potentially being hammered, and the inhibitor uh, tries to subvert it by forcibly refreshing the memory, like you were saying. Um, and yeah, like you were saying, with the sampler, you can basically just have it so you uh, you know get around how many rows it can track. And it can only track so many rows at a time. Um, but you can also hit the inhibitor in a very similar way. Um, the DDR protocol is a synchronous protocol. So because of that, it can only refresh a, so many rows at a time. So you can either uh, hit the sampler so that it can't detect it, or you can hit the inhibitor so that it can't force the refresh, or you can hit both. Um, so yeah, they basically bypass these limitations of the technology to bypass it. Um, and, you know, they tested it on a fair amount of anonymous modules, uh, and they found it was possible. So they don't actually give the, you know, manufacturer names of the RAM modules or anything like that. No, uh, they but they do mention them. that they found it in Google Pixel 3, Samsung Galaxy S10. Yeah, I don't know what phones. memory modules they use. I don't know who manufactures them. But if you knew that, you would at least know some of it. Uh, they also do mention, though, that they only found it in 12 out of the 42 DIMMs they tested. Uh, which, you know, isn't even half of them. Yeah. Uh, which... I, I do wonder, like, they had a list of the phones, and Pixels were, like, common among that list. They had the Pixel 1 through the Pixel 4. And they found the Pixel 1 and the Pixel 3 were vulnerable. Uh, they could trigger bit flips on them. But I wonder why they weren't able to hit the 2 and the 4. It does. It, it is kind of interesting that there's, especially the 2, where there's the gap between the 1 and the 3. You would think that 2 would also be hittable, if 3 is hittable. But it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how, like... Um, even phones on the same line aren't necessarily consistent with how often you can hit it. I, uh, yeah, I was just, well, I, I mean, it makes it really just comes down to who manufactured the RAM, it seems. Uh, which, yeah. unfortunately, they don't actually tell us what RAM is vulnerable to this and what RAM isn't. 
um, in their one page, they just, you know, use module A4, A8, C12, um, not actually telling us anything about that. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that makes this attack more interesting is it seems a lot more viable to attack from uh, a lower level of privilege than a lot of the other low-level issues we've seen recently. Oh yeah, this uh, is like something that, one. you know, can have at least a similar impact to Rowhammer, which was useful for things like jailbreaks. Yeah. So, it is difficult to pull off, and they kind of highlight here with uh, TRR, there are module-specific implementations. Uh, they kind of clear up a misnomer that a lot of, like, people uh, that talk about TRR talk about it as if it's a single mitigation. They say it's more like a set of mitigations that are enforced by the memory controller. So it's not, uh, you know, exactly what that implementation is will differ between the manufacturers, which is why you see those differences in the results. Um but this is something I don't think we'll really see going away. And they even note in the paper, it'll probably be upwards of a decade uh, before we see mitigations that can effectively counter Romer. And that's even if uh, such a mitigation arises. I mean, it's such a, um, it's almost like a physics issue. It's an issue that's like super hard to solve from a CS standpoint. Yeah, well, which... especially because it comes down to how small, like how close together things are that you can have that impact. And that's not going to change. Like, that's just going to get even more uh, no things I mean, are just gonna get more compact over time it's so. possible that they'll find some better way of isolating or something but yeah. like yeah it's not not an easy problem and it's not something that's just solved at like the cs level yeah i do have a bit of a question from this do you think advanced uh persistent threat groups uh like nation states are actually using rohammer attacks in the real world um, especially now that it's been proven that TRR isn't necessarily effective in preventing it? Like, do you think there's actually, it's actually going to be used from, like, a nation-state context? Well, I mean, again, seeing as, seeing as how it has been used, like, just Rowhammer itself has been used for uh, jailbreaks, I mean, that's... I don't see why not, I guess is what I'd have to say to that. Obviously, I'm no expert on APT tactics, but my feeling would be, on. you know, why not? Why wouldn't they be taking advantage of that? It is a fairly simple issue that can, at the very least, you could have some that just tries it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and they move on to another exploit. Yeah, I guess it's not really noisy at the consumer level. Like, you're not going to see, like, uh, visible effects on like the phone for example if uh somebody's doing a row hammer attack on it i don't think yeah. or maybe it, like it, it's no be, like, it is reasonably totally silent yeah so that's why i was kind of thinking about that uh you know especially with trr a lot of people i think thought that trr kind of killed them entirely but now that you know it's been proven that it hasn't been uh maybe we'll see like a rise in those types of attacks i don't know about that it's just something i'm kind of theorizing about um, yeah i don't yeah, know how we'll often we really hear though about exactly what an apt is doing so yeah i mean i wouldn't hold out hope to hear yeah uh but we can we can definitely move into some vulnerabilities our first one is uh not only our first one for the episode but it's also the first one for uh this guy in his blog post so uh that's pretty neat uh, and it was an unexpected Google-wide domain check bypass. Um, and he actually found it by accident. Uh, he was trying to bypass the domain check in a web app, and he ended up bypassing the URL parser used in a lot of Google products. Uh, 
Um, so he was looking at a API called Henhouse, uh, which basically allows you to generate an API key for you if you press a button for Gmail. Uh, and he found this app was basically embedded as an iframe uh, in the documentation. Yeah, in, so, in the Gmail API documentation, the G- that is. Yeah. This is something that Google was using on their applications. Yeah. So the gears started turning of, can I use this to pull off a CSRF ty- type of attack? You know, get a victim to click a link and you can get the API key and then perform actions on their behalf. Um, when he tried it, at first it didn't work uh, because they have a whitelist to make sure the domain is actually a Google domain. You can't just pass any domain you want. Um, but he kept digging into it and he ended up discovering that they have wildcards that are checked against the domain. And it checks against the .corp.google.com and .c.googlers.com um, you know, domains. And how they do that check is through regex. Uh, or regex Um, and when he looked more into exactly how that was working and it was basically like an obfuscated js function so we had to you know de-obfuscate it and reverse it a little bit so before you go there actually um i mean odds are this was just a minify thing so kind of obfuscated uh the source actually was out there though if you knew where to look uh that said i do want to kind of comment on how the data is being passed back uh, so the way this iframe worked is you would embed the iframe on your page. Um, and then whatever happens in there, that iframe would use a post message, uh, which is kind of like a internal, well, not internal browser, like browser internals, but uh, it lets you pass a message from one frame to a parent frame or like to another frame. Uh, just using the browser it doesn't make like a network request. Um it's just like, you know, access to your uh, window parent or something like that post message. And you can send a message over that way. Uh, so what happened is when this application would generate the API token, it would send that back to the web page that it was embedded on and be like, yep. And here's the API key that was generated. Um, and doing that, it's not a network request. So you don't have a lot of the usual protections there. Uh, but with that, you do have to specify a origin when you make that post message. So the code on screen we've got here uh, does include the domain URL as the target. Uh, so there is a little bit of protection there that he's going to look into bypassing. I'll let you kind of get back to that. But I did kind of want to mention how this communication is happening is it is using this post message API. It's not like a network request back. It's not, I'm not sure I'd agree necessarily with calling it like a CSERF style attack. You're just exfiltrating data. It's just a sensitive information disclosure to a third party. Okay, that's good that you were bringing that up. Um, I was just saying like CSERF and the way that you can uh, get a user to click a link and perform actions on their behalf, right? It's kind of the same like goal, I guess. Well, I mean, um, that's kind of like saying though XSS would be the same thing then. Oh, uh, because XS, you're getting them to click a link in theory. Maybe it's stored. You know, there are other attack vectors with cross-site scripting, but you're then using the XS and you can make requests to the website and make changes to the website as that active user. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is a really good point. Thank you. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, when he looked more into what it was doing, uh, he found a regex pattern that was used to determine... Uh, the end of the the domain and uh, commonly how you figure out the end of the domain is looking for special characters you know like a slash a hashtag a question mark um, and the reason you want to do that is because you want to allow for things like get parameters and anchors and stuff like that um, so he figured out that he needed a 
to find a magic character that could terminate the domain for the browser, but not for the regex pattern, so that you could kind of append the Google domain on the end of the domain to make it pass that check, uh, but actually go back to the origin domain in the browser. Um, so he basically wrote a quick JS fuzzer and brute forced it. And he found that slash, uh, question mark, hashtag, and a backslash all worked. It, it terminated the domain in the browser, but not in the library function, which did the validation. Um, well, then, so the backslash was the one that um, worked in the uh, worked in the browser, but didn't work in the regex. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, the other three were the ones. So the regex would look for uh, what the whole regex did. It was it's fairly large. Um, yeah, it's a very big uh, pattern. Fairly large, not something you're easily read. All it does, it parses out the different segments of your URL. Parses out like the protocol, parses out your credentials if you include that, parses out in the uh, fourth place or in the third index uh, is the domain. Uh, so that's, it's looking for, you know, the end of, I want to say credentials would have been kind of the, the thing before that. Either way, goes for your domain. Um, and that's what's comparing kind of for the core.google, like those internal URLs. Um, and it's looking, as Spectre was just saying, for those end characters. And he looked for the one character that the browser would support that they weren't supporting. So, Are you yeah. sure it was just the backslash? Because I think he had a list that said that all four of them worked. But maybe I well, no, All four of them work in the browser. Okay, so maybe I... Uh, uh, but the regex is looking for the slash the hashtag or pound sign and the question mark okay so i see that uh, so that's what sense. the regex looks for what he found though was specifically um and that mentions uh uh actually here on the one paragraph so the authority ends with slash question mark or pound okay um and then what he found after doing that was that slash question mark pound and backslash ends the authority yeah. Or ends the domain. But, um, like, after looking into this and finding this issue in Henhouse, he actually found that this bug was present in many other Google products that use that same library. So that included Cloud Console, uh, the Actions Console, YouTube Studio, and the Google Account Manager. So it, it ended up being a more serious issue than he originally thought it was. So, you know, he reported it to Google, and uh, he actually ended up getting a $6,000 bounty for it. So... You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, fair bounty, good bug. finding. I will mention that he makes mention that, um, uh, kind of when he's talking about getting started. Yeah, to this day, not sure why, but I did not give up and start reverse engineering the JavaScript to figure out how the whitelist works. Um, I'll say when you run into these security features, just as a general tip for people, you know, assess the security features. Oftentimes there's partial implementations as we see here, or things get fixed, but they're not fixed completely. It's extremely common for that to happen. Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of an easy place to look. Obviously they're, they, they're already aware of issues in there, so it's kind of harder, but you know, if you're willing to take the time to dig into it, um, you know, it's a good idea to look into it. I think part of the reason you see those issues um, more often than not is because people, when they see that, they just kind of get scared off. They don't want to look into it. So there's less eyes looking at it, right? 
uh, they see, oh, okay, it's protected against this. Let me look for something else. Instead of actually digging into what the uh, you know protection is actually doing, I think there's a lot less people doing that. And that's why these issues still kind of exist in there. And even from the developer standpoint, they probably think the same thing. They're probably like, okay, I implemented this protection. It's done, committed. Uh, Move on to something gonna, else. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start working on this other part of the code base. So yeah, it's definitely a good uh, place to look. But, um, yeah, but on a whole, I'll say this this is a good write up. Like it was an entertaining read. Um, gives the thought process the flow into it. Yeah. Uh, it could be a little bit lengthy for what the issue is. Uh, but you know the issue is uh, backslash. Like base the issue is the disconnect between the regex and what the browser actually does. Um, yeah. it seems like a lot of issues stem from disconnects between the different components. Slight discrepancies, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a very cool write-up, and it, it was his first one, so like, you know, definitely yeah, he did a good job with school. that. Yeah, uh, we have another issue that's kind of along the same vein uh, with uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook's OAuth, uh, which is their feature that provides that login with Facebook feature you'll see on a lot of websites. Uh, you know, they'll let you do that for convenience sake. So um, after they looked into the Facebook SDK, um, they found. Essentially, the issue is you can strip out the PHP extension on this one uh, UR, uh, URL, XD Arbiter. I'm not yeah, sure well, what that. So let me kind of cover with um, OAuth is an open protocol, open authentication. It's an authorization protocol. It's basically where you have a website. The website doesn't want to actually do your authentication. Doesn't actually want to know your password. So instead, they basically have Facebook do that, and they just confirm with Facebook that you are who you claim to be. Uh, and the way that ends up working is Facebook has their URL. This is the connect slash ping endpoint, at least. This has now been deprecated, but um, effectively, you'd give somebody that link, and that link would also include information like what your application ID is, your client ID, and it would include a redirect URI. So when you log into Facebook on Facebook's website, so you are give, you're giving users a login to Facebook, um, and it's on Facebook's website, you never see their password. They log in, Facebook then redirects them back over to your redirect URI, uh, and they include a token in that request that then your application takes that token, makes another request to Facebook to actually get um, more tokens effectively your refresh your actual bearer token everything that they're actually going to need to use the facebook api um that's kind of what's happening here is this redirect uri needs to be going to this xd arbiter page and i'm going to be honest this write-up i don't feel is as clear there i have a few questions where i'm not quite sure why this happened yeah, it was a bit harder to read for me as well. Uh, but they point out what they notice when they're playing around with that is, of course, usually this redirect URI is going to be validated in some way. Generally, what ends up happening with that is if you just allowed any URL to be placed there, um, any attacker could craft a link using somebody else's API ID. So it looks so with the app ID, what ends up happening is Usually Facebook will show like a picture or will show something that makes it look a little bit more legitimate. Obviously they need to have an app ID with Facebook, things like that. Uh, so you'll craft a page, but if you have the redirect going to, you know, some malicious website, they get that token that can be used to then communicate with Facebook. Um, which obviously is less than ideal. So those redirect URIs are generally fairly heavily validated for an application. So I again, where I'm unclear about what's going on here is 
what he notices he can take the X the Arbiter dot PHP. Uh, he can re strip the dot PHP from it, and he can add further uh, directories after it. So like X the Arbiter slash random slash directory question V equals forty two. Uh, adding in that version thing again. So you could do that, um, and then jump straight into stealing the token from the hash fragment. So I'm assuming what he noticed, it's not mentioned there, is that he could also include a hash, like a URL encoded hash, in that redirect URI, and that could then be used when it did the redirect. It would include that hash in there, so then it would become part of the fragment that isn't actually sent as part of the get URL. Um, that's at least what I'm assuming happened here. Again, he doesn't say that. He just starts talking about stealing the token from a hash fragment. Um, but yeah, then, there's like bits and pieces missing. It's yeah, weird. like it, it just, you know, he discovers that he can't do path traversal. And then straight into this stealing a token from hash. It, I don't know. It, I'm assuming that's what's going on here because that's the only way it really seems to make sense to me. Uh, but then he talks about, so he's gotten the hash, but it's still going to this Facebook URL. Um, it's still this X the Arbiter and stuff. So he needed to find a way to get something to happen where uh, that hash could be exfiltrated somehow. And what he found was there was this page proxy in this random JavaScript file that contained code that would strip the hash, take the hash, and it, like it would strip the code in JavaScript or strip the URL in JavaScript, take the hash and send a post message. Same API we just talked about uh, to the parent frame um, with whatever's in that hash. So that's how he's able to kind of exfiltrate it from that. I don't understand, like I'm assuming again, this is some magic with PHP's URL routing, how they can dynamically include some resources in it or something. Effectively, yeah, he takes X the Arbiter, adds the R slash that JavaScript file, he has another directory after it. it I yeah, mean, it's it, a weird vulnerability. I wish they went a little bit more into why that happens. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of like missing impact, information but... here. <clears throat> yeah. It seems sure. like that's generally what happened. So I'm assuming that like R is for resource and then the resource. So it's saying something like, you know, inject <laughs> this resource into the page. Um that's my guess like that there's just a little bit of magic url parsing so that they can include urls under certain subdirectories for like origin reasons or something like that um i don't actually know like i don't know enough about how this like how page proxy works um he just says like i appended page proxy resource to x the arbiter and there he goes uh, i mean yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting work. issue in a sense, just by being able, by the fact that he was able to do that. Part of what sucks is that, um, like anybody reading the write-up can't really go through it themselves to see exactly how it works, because obviously this is directly on the Facebook domain. This has already been fixed. So it's not like you can try it yourself to try to understand it. So what's in the write-up is pretty much all you're going to get. Yeah, and I mean, um, I like this idea of like the injection of... Uh, that little gadget to exfiltrate the hash. Like, I actually do, I think that's kind of a clever little idea. It's just, yeah. there, there's so much else that's confusing around this that, you know, I'm unclear about the details. Yeah. 
we can talk a little bit about the fixes that Facebook did, though. Uh, and Facebook, they, they didn't really just fix this. They kind of stomped it into the dirt. Uh, they, they, they doused it in gasoline. Um, they did, like, four uh, things. They made it so you can't modify or tamper with the XD Arbiter um, file anymore. Uh, it, it accepts an absolute file path. All the HTTP status uh, redirects are blocked for XD Arbiter. Um, the gadget that they used, the 7s, you know, random string.js file was removed, uh, and they added additional regex validation uh, in some other area. So they did like a lot of fixes for this. Um, one thing I thought was like really crazy was, did you see the payout amount that Facebook awarded uh, for this bug? Uh, what was that? I probably saw it. Fifty-five thousand dollars. Yeah, well, so, I mean, this is, I mean, it makes sense given the level of authorization you'd be able to get. Because once you have this token, uh, you're able to effectively do what you want as the user. Yeah, um, just, And you're able to bypass crazy. a lot of security checks. Uh, because you're basically able to access the uh, graph API. So you're not going to get the same checks as if you're using the actual UI to like change password, change email. Uh, you're not going to need to enter some checks. You can just make some of these changes directly um, as an example. But you basically get access to everything that's on the user's account. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the so amount even, makes sense. I mean, it's it's literally an account takeover. Yeah. But they even mentioned, like, this is the highest record for a client-side attack uh, takeover. So that, that, that amount kind of blew me away. I wasn't expecting it to be that high. But uh, yeah, like you were saying, I mean, I guess it's, it's fair. Uh, like, I, I definitely won't, like, you know, say that's too high. I don't think there's really too high for a bounty, especially with an impact like that. Um, but that just wasn't what I, I was expecting, I guess. Uh, that was a lot more than I thought. So that that's pretty cool, though, that, you know, they got such a high bounty for that. But yeah, like you said, I wish there was a little bit more detail in it because I was kind of struggling to follow along with it. Well, like, um, it seems to have, like, fairly good detail it's just a few places it seems to just kind of skip around like i said yeah. the one place there it, it just doesn't make sense how they get to a hash uh like oh where is it here like i'll just read the sentence here i noticed that only one thing was possible to modify xcarbiter.php question v equals 42 to xcarbiter slash question v equals 42 so removing the php as we had mentioned before also possible to add add more directory slash parameters further except path traversal ah in the first place stealing the token from a hash fragment is very difficult it just <laughs> like there's something missing yeah um, but anyway, we, we can move on to our next, uh, you know, exploit. Uh, up next, we have another CSRF, but this one's a bit more interesting because we don't actually know what software or web app the vulnerability was in. It focuses more on the actual exploitation of the bug. In no, the and, and this is, on. that's why I want to bring this up. This isn't a new attack, but it is something yeah. that I feel like isn't quite talked about enough. Um, it, it's... It's application specific for this particular attack. So JSON CSERFs, generally you kind of have a few, you need some specialized case to actually take advantage of it. One, because sending a JSON body, you need to be able to get like an, a victim on your own attack page. It's not something that you're doing over get, for example. Um, in particular, this was a put request. 
uh, which again, you're not, and then you're not able to craft that from even an attack page. You can't just change the, you can use HTTP get, you can do HTTP post, uh, put, delete, and all those, all the other options, all the other verbs that you could imagine generally aren't going to be allowed to be used from just any random website. You could use it when you're targeting your own domain. There are some cases where you can change the method like that, but generally speaking, it's simply not an option. Uh, unless, you know, going back to the good old days of Flash, I believe <laughs> Flash used to be able to do the other verbs, at least early on, probably like pre-2014. Oh, um, Flash. That said, basically, this covers just a few different tricks to dealing with JSON-based C-Surf. Uh, but the key one that kind of comes up here, uh, or at least the one that I want to focus on, is the method override. And I believe that's kind of their focus. Method override is basically you make like a, you make another request. So a get or a post and you include a, a, a parameter somewhere uh, that tells it to treat this as though it were another method. Uh, so you'd include a method override saying, hey, this is actually a put request. I know, I know I'm sending it as a post, but it's totally a put. Um, this can happen in a few places. It's application specific. So there's no parameter you can try everywhere. In this case, they show an underscore uh, method equals, and then you put, you know, put in there instead of, yeah, they use a post request. Um, and just want those little tricks that I've actually seen reasonably frequently uh in doing assessments where usually this is part of like some development option that might be getting used during development sometimes it is intended to be there in production too um because it, it lets you get around some of the cross-origin issues as i was mentioning before while still maintaining kind of your rest api using all the verbs uh okay it, it's useful though in cases of or I will mention underscore overrides one case underscore method is another parameter I've seen commonly used um, and then other places are using it in the header like x method override x request override something like that again any application can do it, but if you know kind of what framework an application is using you can usually look up and see what the default option would be or if there is a default that actually doesn't kind of play around and it's always worth playing around with that because if you can find it you can usually find some decent bugs that take advantage of it uh if it's not there it's not there like like i said this is application specific so you do need to be able to leak some information or have some info about how the application's built uh which you can discover but effectively jumping back to kind of the actual issue here they're able to craft the CSERP, and what they discovered was one that it didn't actually enforce the requirement to send the CSERP token. Um, so just don't send the token, and hey, you're good. Yeah, it, the, yeah, it won't validate kind of anything. You would think that um, they would check, but you know, you would th you would definitely think they would check, but always test that. So that's another yeah. thing that's just like. Uh, usually it's more like they'll have some error handling that will just be like, okay, ignore it. Like just bail. It, it just, yeah. yeah, it just bails silently and keeps going, which is what I tend to see when it ignores that. Uh, I mean, sometimes it'll have just like this general code that's like, if this is present, do the CSERP check. Um, and I will also mention using this sort of method override, really useful for app web application uh, firewalls um, and useful when 
applications are checking uh, kind of or performing actions based on the verb that comes in. Uh, so say it's performing some check. I believe in this case, it actually does perform some check on every post or on every put. Um, and by using the method override, it'll come in and be seen as one type of request and then later be translated into, into another. So you can sometimes skip some of those checks. Uh, so that's actually, again, another CSERF bypass can be by sending it as some other request type. Uh, like another fun little thing related to that, you can send it as a get and include a get body that has all the JSON in it and then do the method override sometimes. Um, I've definitely seen that. So you do a get with a body, which is generally speaking, not an actual request, but a lot of applications, you do the method override and it'll still go and read the body. Or maybe not a lot, but I've seen it happen at least. Okay. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting article just because even though the bug itself isn't really talked about and, uh, you know, he's, he's intentionally vague about the victim application, uh, it's just one of those articles that kind of reinforces that point of um, just because there's a mitigation doesn't mean it's always implemented properly. Uh, it it kind of, it's, it's kind of like a, another article to enforce that on top of the one we already talked about right uh with the uh the first it, the first exploit we covered with that uh google check so yeah just just another one like that and it's not often you see articles that focus only on the exploit uh strategy instead of uh like the bug um so yeah it's a little bit weird but you yeah know, no it, I, I it's, it's a really idea. useful method though um yeah. it's something that it's one of those things so like if somebody just asked me for tips i'm never remembering this <laughs> but Book it market. is one of those things that is just super useful to know that, you know, this happens, this exists. Put it in a cheat sheet. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to one of our title topics, uh, which is breaking the competition. So this one's actually about um, hitting a CTF hosting provider, uh, which they actually have a hacker one bounty program. It's private. Um, so due to it being a private program, he did have to omit some information about the exact specifics about the pages that were exploited. Uh, or who the provider was. Oh, yeah, or the, <laughs> or the provider was. Um, but yeah, this is like one of those fun ones. Uh, and he found five bugs in this hosting provider. Yeah, I will um, mention that the first one's my favorite. This is one that I've done. Oh, for this sure. This is, um, yeah. if you remember, netcat.us. This was, this race condition was the same thing I did against that. I thought I remembered you talking about an an issue yeah, that was exactly no, I, like this. Because this is one. This is just my favorite little go to thing when I see a new war game or something pop up. So to be clear, I usually like if this is during an actual CTF event, which I have done this during. Um, I'll usually like let the organizers know one that's vulnerable and two ask if it's okay if I abuse it once or twice. Uh, and I'll, and I'll let them kind of decide whether or not I can or not. Some of them have been okay. Like, they're like, yeah, okay, that's a neat attack. Just go for it, have a little bit of fun, or, you know, wait until the very end, points are already decided, and then do it, whatever. But essentially, it's some free points through race condition. It just comes from kind of the naive way of implementing something like this. Uh, you might have a CTF task. You submit the flag, kind of the naive method of doing your flag submission handler. Would be, you know, if the flag's wrong, you reject it, of course. You know, if the user's already solved it, you're like, you know, if user's already solved, new query, whatever to check, reject that if they have. And then if the flag's correct and you pass those other, well, you pass the other checks so the flag is not wrong and the user hasn't solved it, 
query their points, add points, or even just do it in your query, you know, uh, select points equals points plus whatever the value is and mark the challenge as solved. Uh, the problem is if you make a bunch of requests at the same time, all solving the same challenge, uh, you can have that point thing happen multiple times. So yeah, you can end up having like a hundred points. points. Yeah. Yeah. So you can keep having that the point count incremented despite the fact that you're only solving one challenge. You're just solving it a bunch of times. Uh, this is this is another one of those attacks that is reasonably prevalent. Um, whenever you kind of see a situation where the request should only happen once or some limited number of time, they actually make the same have the same issue a little bit later as one of their last last vulnerabilities in this write-up um nonetheless i mean it race conditions on web applications are kind of a weird attack but definitely kind of prevalent whenever you see that sort of restriction on the number just you know give it a try run a hundred requests against it and you might be surprised by what you're able to do uh the rest yeah, of the attacks i mean it's it's not often where you have a website that's doing something that's going to be vulnerable, but when it is there, it's not uncommon. Yeah. When you have the website doing that, it's not uncommon for people to implement it without thinking about the race condition aspect. Uh, that said, the rest of the issues here, I think, are a little bit less fun. Uh, denial of service against any user is another issue. Um, effectively, if you have a CTF uh, where the end date is before the start date, um, then it just HTTP 500s. You get all those errors all over the place. And it impacts anybody that joins that CTF. So you get a bunch of people to join your CTF, uh, modify the dates, and all those users are now impacted by these 500 errors and can't actually play in whatever CTF they were planning on playing. That is a bit limited though, because most people, most on people can't, yeah. can't create CTFs. So yeah, like I said, there is that I feel like the rest of these issues aren't quite as interesting. Um, especially that one. You, you need to be a malicious CTF host. It's something that if somebody were to attack, it would very quickly be able to fix. And they'd oh. be banned. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, maybe with a really selective use there, but I kind of understand why uh, this one, like, oh no, it was initially rejected, and then they found the way to kind of affect more users that uh, let them resubmit it and had it actually accepted. But it's it's an issue. But it's it's, it's definitely an issue. One. Yeah, I, I mean, even without having it impacting all the other users. I think it's an issue just as a bug itself. You know, you yeah. don't want a user to accidentally 500 themselves. Yeah, you, know, you, you just, experience. it's, yeah. So I, the next issue is a little bit more serious. Uh, the forgot password link remained valid after changing your email. Exactly what it sounds like. I forgot password link. You should be able to um effectively invalidate the forgot password links when the user state makes a significant change so changing their password changing their email things like that should invalidate past password links 
Um, so in this case, though, you could do that. You can basically have a backdoor into their account even after they've changed their email. Of course, you need to compromise an account in the first place to get there. Uh, similarly, session tokens were valid despite a password change. Again, you generally want to invalidate sessions. Um, well, on password change, you don't want to do that just with any old state change, but password change is a big one where uh, sessions often do get invalidated. And lastly, you see that same race condition when you have a limited number of uh, teammates that can join a CTF team. Uh, that same race condition, you can get like five people in a two-person team type of thing. Yeah, that one was fun. That one was. Yeah, really I mean, one. it's the same as the race issue above, just a different check. If you had to rank all the issues, which would, like, in order of, like, most interesting to least, how would you... Most interesting? Yeah. Probably the first one, right? On top of the list? Yeah, well, first and last one go there. I, I love the race conditions. Yeah. Uh, they're just always fun to be able to play around with to see. I mean, obviously, having more teammates join isn't really all that impactful. You're probably going to have a Discord or something and you're going to be sharing problems. Yeah, like if anyway, you're so. if you're going to cheat on that, you don't need to cheat by putting too many people in there. And if it's going to be for a prize or something, it's going to be obvious when they go to pay out. And it's like, hey, you know, you have way too many team members. Like, <laughs> Pulling up the th there squad. isn't a big benefit <laughs> yeah. uh, to that one that I can see at least. Uh, but on the interest side, like, yeah, I mean, it's just another one of the race conditions. Uh, the rest of them, though, are pretty bog standard. Like, I'd rank them pretty equally in terms of just interest. I thought the, the forgot password backdoor was kind of neat just because of how annoying that would be uh, to a user who got compromised. Like, uh, obviously, it does require that initial compromise, so that kind of lowers the impact, but... Um, I, I could see it being something that people don't really think about as a potential backdoor uh, if they don't invalidate those links. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that was kinda... like definitely like that's been part of like my standard test cases for a long time is just checking validation when they invalidate certain things. I, same thing for the session tokens. See, that's oh. fair. I don't really do much web stuff, so I guess it's just something that um, probably is a little bit more interesting to me than it is to you. Just where I don't yeah, have fair experience enough. In, that ish, uh, in that area. Like, but yeah, you say, it would be annoying, so yeah. I can agree to that. But, like, just some really fun bugs. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't get paid for any of them, though. Uh, he's getting merch, but, you know, there were no bug bounty payouts. Um, but it, it's probably... Uh... Yeah, it seems like a lot of the private bounties, actually, like, that we see reports out of also aren't paying too well. Which is weird. You would think private bounties would be more lucrative, you know, just by nature, but... Oh, no, I guess part of it, though, is probably just private bounty because they're not ready for prime time yet. They're not ready to have a Maybe. bunch of people hitting it yet, whereas if you've got a really mature security program and all of that, you're ready to have a lot of people hitting you, just go for it and open it up to everybody. At yeah, least that, that's point. my thought. Yeah. But he, he probably got a real kick out of, uh, you know, finding issues in the CTF platform hosting service as a, you know, CTF player and a vulnerability researcher. So that, that, that's what made it. Uh, really yeah. And fun, that's right? why I want to talk about this CTF, one. It's, so. you know, attacking the CTFs. Obviously, the people writing the CTF should be thinking about security. They have too. security in mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it is fun. Like, like I said, that race condition one is, I mean, it, 
it's just a naive way of writing it so it's not uncommon especially once somebody's just kind of rolled their own it is uncommon when you have more complicated scoring systems though yeah so getting into hacker one bounties directly uh we have two issue or well three issues in slack uh this is our first one uh which is basically uh their turn server allowing uh tcp and udp proxying to the internal network yeah which um, to be clear like turn traversal using relays around nat um yeah. it, like it's meant to act as an intermediary it's meant to be a relay so that's not all that surprising but generally speaking you don't want your turn server to be able to hit all of your internal ips and just proxy requests internally unless you've got it in like a dmz or something and it's not actually able to hit anything important yeah so this issue is a little bit old uh it was reported in april uh two years ago yeah but it was only recently just disclosed so yeah and they actually initially denied the disclosure uh in february oh i didn't see that yeah so february 25th 20 days ago uh they canceled the request to disclose uh because they're performing a review of high severity and above disclosures and um want to give your report appropriate consideration before it becomes public of course they replied like i thought you guys fixed this two years ago so i mean it might have just been a case where they didn't look the date and just saw a new disclosure request but i did think that was a little bit funny so it wasn't an outright denial but it was more like a postponement like we want to you know look over it and see first yeah um you know i think that's fair um but it's essentially because the the issue is the attacker can set the peer address in the uh, XOR peer address field of turn. I'm not too familiar with turn. Yeah, um, so, but... it, and it needs to be, like I said, it is meant to be used as a proxy, effectively. Uh, that's how you, so effectively, like, where turn comes in is, say you have, where I've seen this used, um, is, like, you've got a console, a game console, you want to communicate with another console, but you're both kind of behind routers firewalls probably kind of preventing you from really directly connecting to each other uh so instead you're both connecting to the turn server um and from there or i guess just one of you actually would be connect to the turn server um and you just tell it who do you want to connect to and it'll kind of proxy your request oh like a proxying's part of it so you're able to set the request that you want proxy the issue is that you're able to specify an internal URL. Yeah. So, you know, kind of a straightforward issue. Um, our, Slack and, our second Slack issue, though, uh, is uh, a little bit more interesting. It's, a, it's an issue we actually talked about recently, uh, and it's HTTP request smuggling. And I remember saying before that I found this attack to be really neat. Uh, it's not a new type of attack, like you were saying, but to well, me, it was so a new attack. So the desync attacks really cool. are, like, I mean, it's not super new. This isn't, like, the first time it's being done. Like, the desync attacks are why we're seeing a lot more of these request smuggling. And this is another desync-based smuggling attack. Yeah. Um, and that is really just over the last, I want to say, few years, but it might be even less time than that. Um, I thought like this, it, I thought this like attack strategy was known for like the past like ten years or so, but maybe. Well, again, it kind of comes down to like being known versus being actively looked at a lot. Like I'm saying, there's been more of an uptick in the past oh, few yeah, years. Yeah. yeah uh, like request smuggling is really old. Um, that's a really old thing. Uh, this desync attack in particular, I'm actually not super confident in saying how old desync attacks and 
in particular are? I thought there was a pipe, uh, like a white paper that might have highlighted it in like uh, in the two thousands, but I I can't say for certain. Like I don't have the report or like the white paper or anything like up, and you know I might be misremembering. Yeah, I'm, something. I'm trying to look into it a little bit. Uh, I like yeah. I've just done done a quick Google here, and I see you know mentions in like uh, mid twenty nineteen of it being reborn. Um, oh, okay. They have some history here. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, mentioning just so a request smuggling 2005, which expected. And yeah, HTTP desyncs uh, actually being a DEF CON 27 presentation. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so I still... must have been thinking of request smuggling directly, not. Yeah, the and request smuggling is fairly old. Yeah. Uh, but so, the desyncs itself, or at least in particular, transfer encoding, like the chunked and content length as being the desync vector, I believe is quite, quite recent. Yeah. So like you were saying, that's the exact issue here. Uh, you could cause an arbitrary request hijack on slackb.com uh, and force victims to issue uh, get requests on any arbitrary domain. Uh, due to how to the that backend server discrepancy. Um, yeah, well, so it would kind of forward the, the request. Um, and with that, then the request is going anywhere and it's including all of their Slack cookies. Like it's, yeah. it's appending. Basically, you're able to control the start of the next request. So you have it be a get to your own domain. And it'll effectively forward it off to your domain with the entirety of whatever the rest of their request is. So including all their cookies, including their body, all of that is going to be accessible to your domain. Uh, we talk in reasonable detail about the desync attack. I want to say it was just last stream. I think it was the last episode. Like, I'm pretty so. sure it was just last episode. So you can kind of check that out. Um, I'll actually figure out what the specific topic was, but uh, we've covered a bit of depth already on the D saying that yeah, it was the topic was HTTP request smuggling using uh, malform transfer coding header. Uh, so yeah, it, it should be pretty easy to find if you just look at episode thirty two. Yeah, so obviously uh, that ability to steal session information from the cookies and whatnot is a pretty big deal in a chat application where you can leak personal or company data from a victim. So the issue was fixed very fast. Uh, it was it was reported and fixed within a day. Um, this issue was not like nearly as old as the last one. Uh, the last one was two years old. This one's only four months old. Uh, so they were a lot quicker to disclose this one. Um, but yeah, you got awarded uh, $6,500. And uh, I like this one just because like I said, I, I like this type of attack. I think it's a very interesting and clever attack. Um, and this one showed that it could have some huge impact and like potential ramifications as well on an application like Slack. Yeah, and I so. will say, I'll just repeat something I said last episode. If you kind of want to understand this, don't read about it. Just try it out yourself. Build up a little lab with the vulnerability and just try and exploit yourself. That's the best way you're going to kind of get what you can do with this and what you can't do. Yeah. So we can move into our uh, last Slack issue, uh, which is uh, DTLS using a private key in the public domain. It seems like a fairly, uh, fairly straightforward issue. Um, I'll, I haven't really looked at it too much, yeah, though. Yeah, it, it so I'll is. Let you it's take um, away. basically Slack uses the Janus WebRTC server, uh, which does support DTLS. Uh, 
basically the key used there is the default key that comes with the Janus web server. So anybody else who downloads the Janus web server for themselves can have the private key that Slack also is using. <laughs> Very straightforward oh, issue. That's something like that's that's pretty like that shouldn't be happening. Let's be honest. I don't know how that even like on something like Slack. Oh, I mean, how it incredible. happens is pretty obvious. It's oh, leaving the it's default, obvious, but it shouldn't be excusable. <laughs> like, I mean, ideally, like Janus itself would generate a new certificate just on the initial startup. Yeah. Uh, that that isn't to say that Slack isn't responsible. Just ideally, you have the same defaults that just generate new keys and stuff. But I, I don't know. I mean, I I wouldn't like. I still would put blame on Slack for doing that. Do you think it's reasonable to expect Janice to do that? Oh, like, it, do you think that it's not be... reasonable to expect any application to have the same defaults? You should be verifying that yourself. But I do think that application should have same defaults you shouldn't trust it's you know trust and verify or trust yeah. but verify i guess the statement yeah that's um, the old saying yeah i mean you can and in this case once you verified you'd realize nope can't trust them um so we do have one last exploit uh that was kind of a last minute addition uh it was a dom based uh xss uh, well so they call it dom based xss Ooh, we're getting spicy. We're getting a disagreement <laughs> it, it, here. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter, actually, to be honest. Okay. I feel like they call it DOM base because they pull it up out of... Um, out of the hash part of the URL. Okay. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, so they pulled up... I'll just pull up the code here. I initially saw this as maybe being... Sensational? <sighs> No, no. Um, no. Sorry. Let me back up. When I was commenting on the DOM aspect, it's just because um, whether or not this is DOM-based completely depends on something else, some other part of the application. It might be DOM-based. It might be server-rendered. Um, at least I assume you could use this on the server side. I mean, it's part of a React thing. Maybe this is only used in the clients than it would be. DOM base, but it seems like this is just a library that you can use generally. So I don't know. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. Either way, let's just get into it. Uh, what is this called? HTML, HTMR. Basically, you give it an HTML string, it creates a React object. That's all it does. So you call re you call the convert with something that has an XSS and it's a takes in their example window.location.hash and effectively just converts that into a React oh. object, you get a cross-site scripting with it. So my well, my initial run was okay, but this is a library you're calling is you should like the application that's calling it is the one responsible for you should uh, be sanitizing the that was my yeah. initial thought yeah was that the application's the one responsible for this that said what kind of made this one a little bit more interesting is and they reviewed this they closed it and they closed this as not applicable the libraries are made to protect you against cross-site scripting the developer is responsible what it turns out though 
is that if you convert it into HTML entities, so you sanitize the string that you pass in, naturally, as you'd expect, it doesn't work. Uh, you don't get any excess. But if you double encode it, you do get an XSS. And that's because what the application does, or sorry, what the library does um, is when you have a node type that has the like text content in it, um, it'll grab that text content. Um, and when it goes to set it back in, it'll take the text content and it'll pass in, it'll pass that into the inner HTML. So if you're aware kind of with some of these DOM excess, it always comes down to using inner HTML instead of a more secure option to set value. So you're basically, if you can get HTML into that, uh, into some that try to set the inner HTML attribute, you're able to get cross-site scripting. Uh, so essentially the text content value that grabs, that's going to have undergone one uh, desanitization, I guess. It's going to have unescaped the data once because of that. Um, so effectively, this whole thing just ends up stripping out one of the protective mechanisms, one of the layers of HTML entities. Uh, okay. Basically, like what they should have been doing is just just passing it in with the text content, like just setting the text content uh, instead of grabbing text content and putting it back in with inner HTML. Uh, and they even have a comment that they're not dangerously setting inner HTML. You know, this is okay because it's not dangerous because they used uh, the text. If they say it's not dangerous, it's not dangerous. I don't know. Yeah, well, and I mean, like, it's the obvious example. It's not vulnerable to. You send it the excess and it's fine. Or it, sorry, you send it the sanitized data and still it works as you expect it to work. It's just when you do the double encoding that causes a problem. Okay, so it's a little bit more of a complex issue than the title would suggest. It's yeah, like, well, than the original report would suggest. Yeah. I mean, they don't make that clear at all in the original report. So I totally so after get that clarification. One. It did get fixed, even though they yeah, it, it did get fixed. Okay. At least, okay, cool. At least as far as I know, it did get fixed. Yeah, it's been fixed in OA point seven. No bounty, though. Oh, somebody pointed that out from chat. That sucks. No bounty, but uh, we've seen that with a lot of when we've talked about some of these JavaScript libraries. Uh, you know, open source libraries getting fixed. Um, it's just part of this general, like, no third-party modules thing. Um, so they're getting the reports. They're getting people looking at it. But yeah. not not exactly good bounties from it it's open source and not even the main project yeah so i guess that's fair uh, but, uh, taking from chat a view is the next react i don't know is it going to be view or are we going to start seeing more svelte i mean oh, that's man. been that's wait, been picking what, up wait, a bit what was the latter one you said uh svelte i want to say it's actually said I've never even, I'm not into like web stuff, but I've never heard of that second one. I've heard of Vue. Yeah, so, it, but. yeah, well, I use Vue on most of my stuff, personally. Um, that said, Svelte that or Svelte, whatever. <laughs> it's, I've been seeing it getting used a little bit more. It's still pretty early. Like, it was just released a few years ago, whereas Vue, 
I guess the view wasn't that much earlier, just a handful of years. But either way, it, it um it cuts down on the bulk of an application by acting like more of a compiler uh, okay. rather than just a bundler and optimizer. Um, There's so, so many JavaScript frameworks; it's hard to keep track. Do you know <laughs> why that that used to that was true for a little while, and that's just become a meme. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it just kind of comes down to there was a time where we had an explosion of JavaScript stuff, but that was around 2010. It's been fairly stable. React has been the dominant force for quite a while. I, I'd have to go look up all the details, but. I want to say like since 2013, it hasn't been that bad, but there were a couple years, like probably 13 and 14, we had a ton of stuff coming out and kind of right around that turn of the last decade, uh, there's a ton of stuff, but I mean, JavaScript, I think React, like it's been such a consistent top player for the last while. Uh, we're starting to see a few new things coming out. It's mentioned out of chat, uh, you know, web assembly and stuff. Um, and to answer our chat, did you look at Dart to JS or WebAssembly? Um, I've looked at WebAssembly uh, and ASM.js before that. Uh, we've actually talked about WebAssembly before. I think we had a topic about reverse engineering a WebAssembly application and finding like... I think it was a game thing where they had a game wrapped in WebAssembly for obfuscation purposes only. Like it didn't even use it for yeah. any reason other than yeah, just to make it Yeah, I do remember we talked about reverse. it before though. Yeah, I forget what episode. It was probably a few episodes back. Yeah, it's been um, a little while. Um, not, I haven't looked at Dart to JS. I've only barely looked at Dart. Um, I've never really used it. I've done a couple assessments with projects in Dart, but just need to kind of read the code, not write it. Uh, that's a jumping back on uh, my little rant there. Uh, it, it's a lot easier now to pick up your JavaScript frameworks. It's not that much of an explosion anymore. Yeah, so the uh, React versus Angular wars are over? React kind of... No, re React versus Angular is still there, but like they've been oh. a dominant force for a good chunk of time. Views yeah. a bit of a newcomer, but like that's it. We're not talking about hundreds. You know, yeah, we're not talking about yeah. having knockout. We're not talking about having uh, basically just there was like I said. I I it's been a while since I've looked into all the history on that, but there was a huge explosion at one point, and it made sense to say that it's not so much anymore. And I wouldn't be afraid to jump into some of the JavaScript stuff now. Okay. Um, do we have any more on that issue, though? I just, uh... No, just I, I think I've kind of covered the, the bulk of it there, yeah. Okay. So we'll move away from exploits, uh, and we'll get into some defenses. Uh, get back into some low-level defenses, actually. Our first one is a compiler-assisted scheduler for detecting and mitigating side channels on, uh, on caches. So, you know, on this show before, we've talked about, uh, side channel attacks, uh, quite a bit on caches as well as the three major types of those attacks. Uh, you know, the, so there's like flush and reload where an attacker flushes the cache to force memory accesses to bring data into the cache. So the attacker can kind of time that, uh, try to access the same memory line and see how long it takes to see if the victim also access that cache line. Um, you have flush and flush, which is kind of similar, but it takes advantage of the fact that uh, the cache flush, inst uh, flush instruction fails early if the memory line isn't in the cache. So you can kind of mem uh, you know, measure that eviction time. Um, and then there's also prime and probe, uh, which an attacker can you know, create an eviction set 
fill the cash lines with it. And then when the victim accesses the cash, it checks to see if those lines were evicted by looking at the access times. Um, so, you know, just measuring access times on these different types of attacks to see if the victim also accessed the same memory. Um, the goal of this paper is to prevent these kinds of attacks without significant performance overhead, um, which we do see with some of the current mitigations is they do have some of that you know, added performance overhead. Uh, so some of those mitigations... I mean, if like, you never have a cache, you never need to have the side channel. That's true, yeah. Uh, but some of those mitigations include, like, encrypting the cache address, uh, locking cache lines, stuff like that. But that's pretty expensive in terms of the performance you lose there. Um, but what they propose is a compiler-guided scheduler that they call Biscuit. And what it essentially seems to do is it inserts instrumentation um, at entrances of loopness nests to predict cache misses. And then that information gets fed to the scheduler, um, which makes sure the combined cache footprint doesn't exceed the max of the last level cache. Um, so the scheduler checks the predicted number of cache misses uh, against how many there actually were to detect if there's like something malicious going on. And then it tries to isolate the attacker uh, so that it can't uh, pull off the side channel. Um, so it basically uses the fact that cache-based side channels result in higher cache miscounts uh, than normal program execution. So it uses that discrepancy to try to detect them. Um, so their main goal here was the low performance overhead. So talking about the performance results, uh, they have like a nice little page dedicated to that on page 10. Um, and they have the timing differences between the completely fair scheduler, uh, which they note as CFS, uh, and their modified biscuit scheduler. Uh, they compare it against uh, OpenSSL operations, uh, AES, RSA, ECDSA, and they also have other charts just below it of other um, uh, algorithms. And these are both timed under the no attack scenario uh, assumption. So nobody's trying to perform a side channel uh, during these you know, measurements. Um, and while the crypto ones are high, uh, you can notice like in the graphs, the ones with the open SSL attacks, the, uh, or rather open SSL, the difference is quite high between uh, theirs and the completely fair scheduler. It's quite a bit higher, um, but crypto is also a lot more intensive. So I think that's understandable. Overall, they found an overhead of only up to like 6% in some of the higher intensity scenarios in the, uh, uh, when there's no side channel attack happening um, and that yeah and I will just jump techniques. in really quickly that I think part of the issue when you're looking at the crypto ones is if you look at the time there um, like at the EC ECSDA uh, you know the bottom time point is you know 128 seconds and the maximum one is 133 yeah, uh, like, so I mean, when you're dealing with over 100 there. seconds, like, you know, a 2% difference is two seconds at that. Uh, so that kind of explains, like, it looks, I think, a lot worse than it is. Yeah, that's a good point. So, like, overall, they found it to be only, on average, like, up to 6% um, in high-intensity scenarios. Uh, compared to existing techniques uh, like SMT solvers, which I feel like we might have covered in the past, but I'm not 100% certain on that. Well, SMT um, solver, like that's just a general technique. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily for the caching. Like that's just uh, like program correctness and stuff. Yeah, but they mentioned that um, that can have up to like a 225% overhead with an average of 50%. 
Um, and they also mention a lot of existing techniques have higher false positive or uh, false negative rates. Um, one they mentioned, like spy detector, was uh, 0.83F. Uh, theirs they mention at like 0.92. So it's only like, I think, 8% uh, failure rate when testing for false positives and stuff like that. So overall, it seems like they accomplished what they set out to do. Um, I do wonder, though, like, even though they have some promising results here with the low overhead and preventing the side channel attacks, um, I do wonder if we'll see a lot of adoption. Just because, honestly, I don't know if a lot of people really care about these kinds of attacks because they require such a high degree of uh, access already to do. And if you're confident in your system security or you don't think it's an issue, 6% um, overhead, while small, still may be too high for people to want to consider. So, you know, it's it's cool that it set out what it's, you know, tried to do, but I still don't know if it'll really lead to much adoption. Yeah, I kind of agree with you on that. I'm not sure we'll see too much adoption of it. Uh, one is that 6% is still, like, I'd want to see it even less. Um... Because, I mean, part of it's also just some of these things are going to be run on smaller, more embedded systems that just don't have the power or are otherwise constrained, where 6% can be significant. That said, like, I mean, it's not a lot. Like, I'm not trying to bash this being, oh, well, 6% is just so high, because it's really not. Most most areas are going to be to deal with having that little bit of extra, but I do agree. The people that are concerned about this... It's definitely a smaller subset than those that just use OpenSSL in general. The, the thing is, too, is having to use their own custom scheduler, while it's cool and it solves the issue, I think that will be a deal breaker for some people. Um, you know, it's obviously not a high performance scheduler because it has that added overhead, even if it is only up to 6%. So it, it kind of limits the options of the person who would want to use this. Um, cause the scheduler is something that, you know, it is one of those critical system pieces that can really cause cascading issues. So people are, I think, less, uh, open to messing with it. So I, I think that is another consideration. Yeah, that being I'd said, agree. I think it's still cool that, you know, they, they managed to do it. Uh, they managed to do what they set out to do. Uh, and it, it's kind of cool and how it works. So we still wanted to cover it, but I just do question, you know, how adaptable it's going to be. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really have any other thoughts on that. The next paper though, I think is quite a bit cooler than this one. Um, it's bypassing memory safety mechanisms through speculative control flow hijacks. So this last paper, we have tunnels in on memory safety issues, um, and mitigations that try to minimize their impact. So, you know, some of these mitigations that are pretty common nowadays, um, maybe not as common, but there's control flow integrity that you see in Windows. Um, you have stack canaries for preventing stack overflow, well, trying to mitigate stack overflows. And, you know, you have memory safety mechanisms that are built into languages. Um, so, you know, memory safety checks. So if you go to, a, you know, index an array in Golang, for example, and I'm using Golang because that's actually a language they target here. Um, if you try to do that, it's going to check at runtime to make sure that that index is actually safe and not out of bounds. Um, so, you know, they have a, a mechanism that the compiler puts in to check for that. And what they basically talk about is trying to use speculative control flow attacks to bypass those added uh, safety measures. 
Uh, so they focus on Golang's runtime memory safety checks, uh, GCC's vTable verification, and the Smashing Stack Protector, or SSP. Um, and the way they pull it off is by abusing speculative execution. Uh, so you basically cause the predictor to speculate incorrectly if a bounce check will pass or not, and that can cause a buffer overflow due to uh, it speculating incorrectly. It's not surprising that all the things, uh, well, all the things except for CFI uh, were vulnerable. They couldn't hit CFI. In theory, CFI is vulnerable, but I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but in reality, anything with a check can be hit with a low level or at the low level like this. Um, so for example, like stack cookies, uh, they mentioned the attacker can basically overwrite the return address and then the attacker forces a misprediction so that the return address is transiently followed and ex executed. So it's not really a new attack. Uh, it's something that we've already kind of known about. Uh, it's just demonstrating how these known attacks can be used to hit uh, existing mitigations that are in place. Yeah, it's fun to see it kind of being pulled into the practical. They're doing something with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, the only one that they found they couldn't really hit was CFI. Uh, they found the window was too short uh, for them to hit it. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I, I wonder if that is, like, by design. Like, if they implemented CFI uh, with potential speculative execution in mind while doing it probably not but cfi at the performance level i think uh just has a bit more of a limiting factor to it uh because yeah. it is being done kind of in line with all of your like indirect jumps and everything whereas you know they maybe weren't as concerned when dealing with like your return addresses uh like obviously they still care about it at that level but I could see it being just more related to the situation. Yeah. So they propose some mitigations uh, for these types of attacks, uh, which is probably the more interesting part of the paper uh, for, like, you know, the maintainers of, like, Golang, for example. Um, and it's basically load fences. Uh, for stack protectors, they suggest putting a fence around the canary loads or masking the return value and setting the mask to zero in failure cases. Um, for Golang, they propose, again, adding a fence after the compare instruction uh, in the is-in-bounds operation, which is used on array checks. Um, or, like stack protectors, introducing a masking sequence to ensure the index is safe. Um, I think they said that the Golang devs are actually considering implementing some of their mitigations, which is pretty cool. Um, so overall, like thoughts on the paper. It's a, it's a cool paper. Um, the mitigations, though are obviously very targeted. It only really patches a few of the known vectors, like common operations that are vulnerable to it. There's likely more that aren't covered in this paper that wouldn't be protected against uh, with these types of mitigations they propose. Because um, you can't really, you can't really just start throwing load fences everywhere. They have quite a high performance overhead. So, you well, know, you isn't the suggested mitigation them. for Oh, uh, uh, the um, LVI wasn't that tossing load fences everywhere? Isn't that what they suggested? Uh, might have been, yeah. So, like load fences are like the only way, really, that it seems you can prevent these types of attacks. But you know, you want to be careful with how you use them, just because of that. Yeah, I'm not increase. saying it's a practical thing. I'm just saying I think I think they suggested in that paper a uh, pretty heavy use of load fencing. Yeah, this paper is kind of similar to that one in, in many ways. Um, 
it, it's cool that I think it's cool that they left in that CFI didn't work. I think with white papers, uh, you'll see fairly often that failed results are probably chopped out. Uh, like you only really see the positive findings like, oh, we 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 hypothesized this would happen and hey, it did happen. Um, you don't really see the ones that they hypothesized would happen but didn't work out. So I think it's cool that they kind of included that. Um, it's it's interesting how CFI was the only one that gave them problems, really. But I think it's cool that they kept it in there. I think they deserve uh, a, a bit of props for it. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all my thoughts on the paper. I don't know if you uh, have any additional thoughts you want to add in. No, I don't. Uh, in there. No? Okay. So we'll wrap up the show here. Uh, that pretty much concludes all of our topics. Um, thank you to everyone who tuned in. We are going to have another video coming out uh, within the next day or two of some cool security-related stuff you can do if you're one of the people stuck at home due to this coronavirus craziness. Um, so, you know, keep a lookout for that. Um, you can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube 24 hours after the stream. Uh, Twitch immediately, YouTube, or any of our other platforms, 24 hours. Uh, we also have the previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, we have them on a few other places as well that you can check out on Anchor. And uh, if you want to, you know, get involved in our community a little bit, you can join our Discord or follow us on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, that pretty much sums up the episode. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday at the same time, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 12 p.m. Pacific. Uh, just looking at the chat. Uh, I'm one of those who will still show up at work. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, not everyone's uh, able to work from home, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, for the people who are, you know, we'll have a little video of some stuff you can do while that's happening. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just a few ideas if you're looking to you know, fill your time as you're lonely here again and maybe want to learn some <laughs> while more While the virus like ruins your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, we'll be back again next Monday at the same time. Uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, and we'll see you guys then. Right, thanks for watching.